Hello, everyone. Today's Chitheads episode is a special one, not only because it is an interview with none other than Dr. Cornell West, but because it also features my friend Onika Mays as the interviewer. Onika was the co-host with me of the recent Spiritual Citizenship online conference, and this conversation was the keynote event of that conference. I'm very excited to welcome a new voice besides my own into the Chitheads interviews, as this is something that we will be experimenting with more in the future. If this is your first time experiencing Onika Mays, I just wanted to let you know that you can also find her on our recent EPTV original series, Subtle Sessions, leading an educational show called Meta Without Dogma. Meta, if you're not familiar, is a form of loving kindness meditation that derives from the Buddhist tradition. Currently, the first five episodes of this eight episode series are available on demand on EPTV and a new one is being released every week. Two other shows that are a part of the Subtle Sessions, a Kirtan show with Nina Rao, and a show on demystifying the teachings of yoga with Mary Riley Nichols, are about to be released. Lastly, if you missed the Conference on Spiritual Citizenship, which includes 27 talks, panel discussions, and workshops on a variety of topics in spiritual activism, all of them are now available on demand on EPTV, which you, by the way, can also download as an app on Amazon Fire Stick, Android, iOS, and uh, Roku streaming services. EPTV is available with a premium membership to Embodied Philosophy, so just head to embodiedphilosophy.com and click on Become a Member for more information. I hope you enjoy this conversation between Onika and Dr. Cornell West on what it means to be a spiritually informed citizen. All right, all right, all right. I am so happy to be here. I am incredibly excited and honored and grateful to have with us Dr. Cornell West. As we've really been talking about what does it mean to be a spiritual citizen, we have touched on the ecology, we've, talk, we've touched on social justice, we've, talk, we've touched on queer dharma, and today we're going to talk about how do we show up as a spiritual citizen in today's world. Dr. Cornell West is a prominent and provocative democratic intellectual. He holds the title of Professor Emeritus at Princeton University. He is also taught at Union Theological Seminary and he is back there now. He has been at Yale and Harvard and the University of Paris. Cornell West graduated magna cum laude from Harvard in three years and obtained his master's and PhD in philosophy at Princeton. He has written 20 books and has edited 13. He is best known for his classic Race Matters and Democracy Matters and for his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. His most recent book, Black Prophetic Fire, offers an unflinching look at 19th and 20th century African-American leaders and their visionary uh, legacies. And beyond that, beyond being an academic and a scholar, he musically conveys a message that can make our hearts dance, make our hearts beat waving our hands in the air instead of just hearing his words. There's an energy that taps into ancestral knowledge and that energy for some folks 
may be owning up to and embracing that energy, even when it is uncomfortable. There is agency in his words, whether he is talking to us about systems of oppression that have infected this land or the power of standing in our integrity. I heard Dr. West talking about James Brown and standing in the show notes. Integrity is defined as the state of being whole and undivided. And Dr. West is indeed whole and undivided. And I am excited today for this conversation that we are going to have. There's a wisdom that I think is bigger than us present today. And I know that we are in for a rhythmic treat. And without further ado, Dr. Cornell West. Ooh, what magnificent words you send my way from soul to soul and heart to heart, my dear sister Onika Mae. I first want to salute D.D., your precious mother. We are who we are because somebody loved us, somebody cared for us, somebody attended to us. And old brother Alfred, we don't, we don't have a language for him. We shall forever, ever keep him in our hearts and minds and souls, your beloved father. And both of us wrestling with recent losses. My mom lost just a few weeks ago and of course she lives in me forever uh, as well but i just want to say i'm just so blessed to be in dialogue with you oh indeed indeed what a mighty work you do at rikers rikers prison really with the precious precious incarcerated folk who could be emancipated and liberated psychically spiritually in so many ways as they undergo that particular moment in their journey and their pilgrimage in space and time. Mm -hmm. So that I, uh, I'm i just going to groove with you. Like we said, you like Mary Lou Williams, and I'm going to do a little <laughs> bit of Lester Young on a good day. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because see, both of us come from a people, you know, who've been so hated for 400 years, but keep dishing out love warriors. Mm -hmm. Like, Ross and Roland Kirk, you were talking about that theme from what's the name of that song? Theme for the Ulipians. Yes, everybody needs to listen to that after this dialogue. Or you can listen to Coltrane's Love Supreme or Stevie Wonder's Love and the Need of Love or just a reef singing about respect that a genius from Macon, Georgia, Otis Redden wrote. But this, this has everything to do with coming to terms with this moment of spiritual decay and moral decrepitude. Mm. And by spiritual decay, what I mean is the lethal combination of ignorance and indifference. The great Rabbi Heschel used to say indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. When the, the ignorance and the indifference come together, when the cowardliness and the greed come together, then you've got a spiritual vacuum, a spiritual emptiness, a spiritual decay. And the only way you respond to decay is not by just putting forward propositions or uttering sentences, but embodied philosophy. I love the title, that philosophia, that love of wisdom must be embodied. It must be enacted. It's like the conclusion of a practical Aristotelian syllogism, which is not a series of propositions. It's a lived life. Exactly. It's a way of being. It's a mode of existence. What kinds of virtues and values and visions do we concretize and fleshify as we move through space and time? And that's 
what spiritual citizenship, spiritual citizenship was a beautiful formulation because, you know, to be a citizen is to rule or be ruled. And to be spiritual is to shatter certain kinds of ignorance and indifference. Mm -hmm. And we never shatter all of them because no one of us is pure or pristine. No one of us is free of spot or wrinkle. And therefore, we're continually trying to learn how to die in order to learn how to live by shattering our certain assumptions that tie us to blindness and ignorance and indifference. And that's why we need each other. Mm -hmm. That's why you have to have community. You have to have mutuality as a form of a part of your citizenship, even though we all are unique and singular individuals. And then somehow we've got to shatter that callousness inside of us. Uh, when I think of the black tradition, it has to do with how do you shatter the white supremacy inside of each and every one of us, no matter what color, white supremacy mm -hmm. resides inside of us. We grew up in a white supremacy civilization, mm -hmm. 244 years of barbaric slavery, another 100 years of neo-slavery, of Jim Crow, of American terrorism, of lynching, of Jane and Jim Crow, really. And then now we've tried to create this multiracial democracy and you're getting, you know, the backlash against it, trying to go back. And so what's fascinating about the tradition that produced me, the West family, Shiloh Baptist Church, Donna Hathaway, Luther Vandross, the Dramatics, the Delphonics, the Emotions, the Jones Girl, all of those are these great waves in a larger ocean of responding to hate, not by hating others, but by loving oneself and loving stranger, loving neighbor. And I'm a Christian, so I yeah. even try to love my enemies, but that's a whole different thing. You don't try that by yourself, you're gonna get in a lot of trouble because uh, 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 you have to get some kind of grace. You need some kind of aid, some kind of uh, uh, intervention to get beyond your own narcissism, to be able to have a gratefulness to have a thankfulness, but most importantly, to have a deep commitment to what you are all about, which is service to others. Yeah. Joy in service to others. Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about, you said so many great things that I, that I want to just chop up with you. Like you, sure. you talked about this idea of spiritual rot, right? Like I was reading that um, in your resignation letter to the Dean of Harvard, when you said, let us bear witness to this spiritual rot. And I've seen and sort of new age world and, and some spirituality, we have this idea of toxic sort of positivity where we don't want to talk about the things that we need to talk about, right? Yes. And, and right. how do we... How do we allow ourselves, whether it's internalized racism or impression, or if we are sitting in the seat of privilege, how do we like, you know, like Angela Davis said, how do we grasp that by its root and, and really show up for love that you were just talking about on the tightrope mm -hmm. the other day with Dr. Trisha Rose, that love and death episode, which I just thought was so powerful. How do we intervene with ourselves? Ooh, that's a profound question. And of course, we've got to ask you that question too, because you've got some deep wisdom to share and I've got my little bits of wisdom to try it out here as well. But, uh, um, and it's fascinating how Angela Davis, you know, is so tied into yoga and yoga activities. Yes. You know, yes. When, I was at Oxford, when I was with Oxford for her, we, were, we had the anniversary of Malcolm X uh, debate and she said she had to do yoga before the debate. I said, oh mm. Lord, mm. 
communist yoga. That's fascinating. I love that. I love it. I gave her the biggest hug. I said, good God of mine. But back to your question, that the, uh, I think the first thing that uh, we need to do is to acknowledge and not be in denial or disavowal. Mm-hmm. It's like the first part of John Cole's change, love supreme is acknowledgement, mm-hmm. resolve, resolution, then yeah. pursuance, then the Psalms, then the Psalms. Mm-hmm. See, that's Elvin, that's mm-hmm. Jimmy on the bass, mm-hmm. that's McCoy on the piano, that's trained on, now, now, that is a form of spiritual citizenship Mm-hmm. because it's an attempting to make sure that what rules, what really does rule, R-O-R-U-L-E, is not greed, mm-hmm. not hatred, mm-hmm. not hypocrisy, mm-hmm. not fear, but the counterweights to those, which are forms of love, forms of empathy, forms yeah. of compassion. Mm-hmm. And the only way we can do that is to undergo deep cultivation, mm-hmm. what some people these days would call education. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, education has been so colonized by careerism and opportunism mm-hmm. and preoccupation with hierarchical status and ranking and access to position and status and spectacle and what title and what prize you, you win. And so you end up with, and this is very old. I mean, most of the great spiritual traditions would say this. I go back to uh, Hebrew scripture. I think there's a genius in Hebrew scripture that talks about hesed, this loving kindness, this steadfast love yes. that we must spread to the orphan yeah. and the widow, the fatherless, the motherless, the persecuted, the poor, the subjugated, the incarcerated, and so forth. And that's exactly what Yahweh tells the precious Jewish brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and said it has to go to everyone. So Amos and Esther and Isaiah become prophetic figures to all the nations, mm-hmm. including Israel itself. Yes. Yes. Including that each and every one of us, ourselves. Yes. You know, that idea of loving kindness, right? It's so powerful. You know, I, I teach a meditation. I teach metta mm. meditation from the Buddhist tradition. And we, we talk yes. about this cultivating of loving kindness. And it seems so easy, right? It seems so easy to say, but so much harder to do when you start to sit with yourself and then you're encountered with these, with these parts of yourself that feel uncomfortable that you don't want to look at. Um, You want to push them away. And I was thinking about when you were talking about love and death, that something really does have to die in Uh, order for us to find that love, right? That's Um, exactly right. I mean, Montaigne, you know, one of the great uh, early European philosophers who created the genre of the essay itself. The essay means to measure. It means to assess and evaluate in a very substantive way. And he's got an essay on to philosophize is to learn how to die. Mm. To philosophize is to learn how to die. Mm. And of course, what he means there, and I've told students that it's my 44 years that I've been blessed to teach. They come in this classroom, you're here to learn how to die. They say, oh, wait, I thought I was just trying to get a grade, <laughs> make it through, make it through right. school, get my degree. I said, no, oh, no, this is not, this is not just a formal procedure. Mm-hmm. This is an existential interrogation. Mm-hmm. This is an, a scrutiny and questioning of who we are. St. Augustine, the great North African theologian used to say, 
I am a question to myself. Mm -hmm. I'm wrestling with who I am in space and time. And therefore this learning how to die means you got to give up certain assumptions, certain dogma, certain presuppositions. And when you give those up, it's a form of death. Yeah. And there's no development. There's no yeah. growth. There's yeah. no maturity without giving up certain assumptions such that we can grow deeper toward the best of who we are. That's one of the reasons why and what I love about the notion of spiritual citizenship is that it recognizes that in public spaces, in communities, that we don't begin a dialogue by just name calling and finger pointing. Mm -hmm. You begin with an examination of yourself. Yes, exactly. So you talk about race, let's talk about the vicious legacy of white supremacy. Let's talk about the white supremacy inside of me. Mm -hmm. How do I wrestle with it? How do I push it aside so that what? so that something can emerge much more powerful, which leads toward, and see, as a Christian, you know, we have a notion of charitable Christian hatred. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I learned that in Vacation Bible School, Shallow Baptist Church, where you hate the sin, but still try to love the sinner. Yeah. Because the sinner is not locked into a static, stationary position. They can grow. They can develop. They can expand, they can mature. And because each and every one of us made an image and likeness of a God, it means that we have the potential to change. Absolutely. We have the potential to undergo deep transformation. Mm -hmm. And therefore you hate injustice, you hate domination, you hate occupation, you hate greed, you hate envy, you hate resentment. But the human beings who enact that still are human beings. Mm -hmm. And they are in change and transition and they can actually go another way. And how do we do that? Right. Like how, like for folks who are listening, because it is, it, it, it does make so much sense that parts of us, how to die. And if, what if we don't have like a, a, a spiritual path or a traditional lineage, or for so many folks who call themselves spiritual, but not religious, which I, I and I'm one of those folks, so what practices can we do? So we can like learn how to die and embrace that part of us first. Cause I, I do think in order to have those, those things die, we have to look at it and be tender absolutely. with it even. Absolutely. So we can let it go. How absolutely. do we do and that? I, ooh, and I love your use of the word tender. Oh, I love that use of the word tender because you know, justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. tenderness is what love looks like in pride Woo. what it feels like in pride that mm. same Otis Redden that wrote mm. respect for Aretha he sang a song called try a little love and tenderness, tenderness. that's right that is right <laughs> now, we've got the vanilla brother Bing Crosby that same, <laughs> same song in 1930 God bless him so he sounds good but Otis going to take it to a place that Bing knows not of. Uh -huh. <laughs> and he takes it to the same place of dipping it in the deepest mm. kind of wrestling with suffering yeah. and hurt and pain and grief and misery and transfigure that hurt and pain and grief and misery into a joy. Mm. And so the relation between joy and justice, joy and love, joy and tenderness, mm -hmm. including being tender with ourselves. Mm 
Absolutely. There's that Zora Neale Hurston quote. Uh, I've been in Sorrow's Kitchen and licked out all the pots and I've stood on the peaky mountain wrapped in rainbows with a harp and a sword in my hand. Oh, that's so one powerful. Of and the way you, re the way you recited is powerful. You're putting a smile on Zora's face from the grave. I, I love that. But that, that's, that, that's what she's getting at. That's mm -hmm. what she's getting And what we love about the great Zora Neale Hurston, I deeply, you know, call into question a lot of her conservative politics, but she's a literary genius. She's a spiritual yeah. genius. Yeah. And that's yeah. very important. We have to be able to learn from a variety of different peoples that we don't always agree with. That or part. don't look like us. Or don't have right. the same gender or sexual orientation or mm -hmm. binary or uh, non-binary uh, status when it comes to sexuality. We got to be open. We got to be like jazz musicians. We got to learn how to listen mm -hmm. and learn from mm -hmm. all persons from walks of life. But what she's getting at is this sense of gratitude of the best of who we are. Mm -hmm. the interrogation of the worst of who we are mm -hmm. and how we must do that in relation to others. You can't do it in an isolated way. That is right. We are, we are in this together, right? Absolutely. We, we leave on our own, but we are in this together. And I do believe, and I can't remember who said it, and I, I'm sorry to the person who said it, but that we are ancestors in training. Um, oh, as, I as love we that. are as we are on this on this path. I believe it was Rachel Cargill, I think so, but that this idea that when we're moving on this journey, that we have got to remember that we are leaving a legacy behind. And that means understanding that taking care of ourselves is also taking care of others. That's exactly right. And here, of course, you get this fascinating interplay between having relatives and having ancestors mm -hmm. because we really can't conceive of what love is mm -hmm. uh, uh, unless we had some early experience of a love a care a compassion with persons over which we had no choice whatsoever yes you know in your case precious dd precious alpha my case irene clifton so mm -hmm. then you got brothers and sisters then you got cousins, mm -hmm. then you got so-and-so. Now, now those are relatives mm -hmm. and they play a fundamental role, but then we're freed up to choose our ancestors too. Yeah. Yes. So you that can choose your ancestor from, from, from indigenous peoples in the Southern part of Florida. You can choose your ancestors from Nigeria. You can choose your ancestors from France. You can choose your ancestors from Germany and so forth. Because so that Shakespeare makes a difference, so that Dante might make a difference, so yeah. that Nelson Mandela makes a difference, so that Marie, uh, Miriam Macabre makes a difference and so yeah. forth. So this sense of having agency and choice and creativity, but also rooted in those early love experiences. Mm -hmm. And how do we cultivate, what if we, we haven't had that, that that early love experience. I mean, I hear I hear a lot of stories at work when I'm at Rikers about folks who, you know, will sit down and we'll do a meditation for the first time. And and I like to do loving kindness a lot because That's there is beautiful. this sense that that love is missing. And for for so many people, it's it's the first chance that they've let themselves exhale or even taken a moment to say like, oh, I can love myself. What are some ways that 
if we didn't have that, because I am so fortunate that I had my parents and my family and my cousins and my aunts and my uncles and my siblings. How do we do that if we haven't had them? Ooh, well, that's, 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 that's so crucial because uh, we have to be able to work with something. Mm. You know, America's got this myth of individuals being self-made. Well, I guess we gave birth to ourselves too. I guess we taught ourselves language. No, we were always dependent. Mm. And that takes us back to Coltrane. You see the acknowledgement, both of the pain, but also the acknowledgement of those who have been sources of good in our lives. Absolutely, yes. So that, for example, I mean, as we were talking before, you know, I've been blessed to teach in prisons now for 44 years. And uh, one of the first questions I asked my brothers is, uh, how many of y'all would take a bullet for your mama? 99% of them stand up. I said, I got the right crowd. I got the right crowd. I got a hook now. Because mm -hmm. I'm trying to bring the love train up in here. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a caravan of love session. Long yeah. classes, just like the Isley Brothers. The caravan of love. OJ, love train. Absolutely. The freedom train of Gladys Knight and the Pips. Or the mm -hmm. train that Curtis Mayfield talking about. People get ready. Get fortified. Are you equipped to get on this train? Mm -hmm. You get on this train. It's a train of spiritual citizenship. You're going to have to embody some quest for wisdom, for truth, beauty, goodness, maybe even the holy if you move in that direction. But it's going to take you outside of your egocentric predicament. It's going to yeah. shatter some of your narcissism, your egoism, your tribalism, your mm -hmm. clanism. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you have not had the experience within your own family, then you look for those moments in your life was somebody care. Yes. Could have been a stranger, could have been a friend, could yes. have been a partner, could have been a coach, could have been a teacher. Or yeah. even, I was reading Octavio Butler's great parable of the sword at Castle mm. 1993, where, where uh, Lauren has the uh, the syndrome of hyper empathy. Yes. It's like George Eliot's Middle March on steroids. <laughs> Dorothea just caring for everybody, getting in trouble. Well, so it is with Lauren, takes, but she's doing this under apocalyptic circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's Octavia Butler's genius. Mm -hmm. It's 2024. She wrote that in 1993. Now, in, 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 in those texts, she said, well, ooh, I've got to connect in a profound, empathetic way with folks far beyond family. Far beyond relatives, mm -hmm. choosing my ancestors, but being open to the strangers. Yeah. Some of the folk you, you didn't even know had the potential to love you so, but they're going to take you to places you know not of, too. That part, that. It's the stranger, right? Like, there's so many people that we see and we don't know, but if we allowed ourselves to realize that there's a thread. I was just talking with Pamela Ayoye-Tunde um, on a panel the other day, and she, yes, talked yes. About, she talked about being making that connection and how can we make it, right, if we don't have family. But we, we move beyond family and family becomes species, right? Yes. So we can make that family. And then if not, then we can make it interspecies. So is there a pet that you had that showed you Ooh, love? Now that's a, and we yes, can go beyond that. And then even nature, can we connect to trees or to the ground? And finding some way to cultivate that sense of you are no longer somebody that I don't know, or you are no longer something that I don't know. 
But because I see you and I know that you see me, we we can we can be related. We can be family. That, that's that's so powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds one of um, great Martin Buber's distinction between I it and I thou. Mm. Mm. And the I it is an object that you're relating to. The thou, the subject, yeah. it's an agent. It's a human yeah. being that you're relating to. Mm-hmm. And in in that way, one's precious dog or cat becomes a thou. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very much so. In my own Christian tradition, St. Francis of Assisi, that brother, he fall in love with the birds, mm-hmm. with the sun, with the moon, yes. Yes. with the leaves of the trees. He said, oh, St. Francis, you've gone beyond Jesus in a certain point. I don't see Jesus saying I'm, I'm dying for the cardinals and the and, and, and the cats, you say, well, no, well, God loves creation as a whole. Now, this is, again, you know, the Christian tradition. We Christians have no monopoly on truth or beauty or, or goodness or anything, but we're one crucial voice and the larger voice of the species trying to come to terms with what it means to be human and shatter forms of ignorance and indifference that get in the way of our human and humane connection with one another. Mm-hmm. That's going to be manifest in terms of our struggles of structural institutional injustice. Mm-hmm. It's going to be manifest in how we treat each other, the tenderness that you alluded to, mm-hmm. the kindness, mm-hmm. the sweetness. I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Black tradition is that some kind of metaphysical magic that Black people have showing up in Black wounds. Mm-hmm. No, soulfulness is the sharing of a soothing sweetness against the backdrop of a grim catastrophe. That. Yes. yes. Being a wounded healer mm-hmm. and a joy spreader. Look at Louis Armstrong. That mm-hmm. brother's oozing with so much love and joy every moment that he interacts. Not just blowing his horn and singing his song, but mm-hmm. interacting. He's spreading joy. Yes. Yes. And the, the, with the very thing you do all the time at right, because you come <laughs> in with a smile and the folks say, oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> Look at all of this joy coming our way. How does Onika have that on the inside? Well, let me tell you a story. <laughs> you have to. You have to look for the light. You do. Because there, there is heaviness, right? And this isn't to say that I ignore the heaviness. But that's I walk right. into that institution that's really heavy. So I don't need to look for darkness because it is darkness. That's but if right. I don't look for light, right? If I don't look for those opportunities to connect, um, it, you know, what's it for? You know, when, when I first started, um, I had, I, I, I honestly think I had kind of a reductive view of the whole thing. And, you know, and I saw the, the officers kind of one way and the folks that I was serving, you know, on the other side and, and then in doing the work and going in all the time. And then you realize that some of these officers, they are people, they have families, they have right. dreams that, it really called into question and I had to let some things die, right? Talking about love and death. I had to let that die, right? And I think it's your work and what you talk about and we're here talking about spiritual citizenship, how important it is to be open, like you said, to allow ourselves to be open to the possibility that there might be another way to think. There might be another way to be. Absolutely. I mean, one of the... um distinctive features of our own day, both in the American empire as well as being human beings on the planet, is that uh, the blues have become ubiquitous. 
It's hard just to be alive and not have the blues. Mm -hmm. And so there's a sense in which either we're going to learn from blues people how to survive and thrive with love, with hope, with courage, Mm -hmm. with tenacity and humility, or we're going to lose the whole planet. Yeah. Or we're going to lose any democratic experiment, you see. Yeah. Can we talk about hope? You know, you've said that hope and optimism are different and optimism tends to be based on the notion that there's enough evidence out there to believe that things are gonna be better, much more rational, deeply secular, whereas hope looks at the evidence and says, it doesn't look good at all, this doesn't look good at all, and going beyond the evidence to create new possibilities. How do we, how do we find ways to continue to cultivate hope? Mm-hmm. It, here again, you know, we go back to the blues. The blues is neither optimistic nor pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be a blues person is to be a prisoner of hope. The optimism, as you said, talks about evidence, but it also presupposes a certain kind of spectatorship mm-hmm. that you're observing at a distance and you're looking to see what the evidence, you know, says. Mm-hmm. Whereas hope like a blues man a woman you're creating new evidence yeah yeah you see when billy holiday sings about a catastrophe called american lynching terrorism jim and jane crow and strange fruit written by the jewish brother mirapole in the lyrics that she is participating in getting us to shatter our spectatorship and feel like a participant and how you wrestle and cope Mm. with an overwhelming catastrophe and yet not allow that catastrophe to have the last word. Yes, yeah. strange fruit the southern trees bear black bodies swaying in the southern breeze. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. And then people I, think, good God, you got Irish brothers and sisters wrestling with British imperialism. You got dollars in India. You got... Roma in Europe, you've got landless peasants in Brazil, you got women dealing with domestic violence, you got precious gay brothers and lesbian sisters and non-binary dealing with the possibilities of being viciously attacked and devalued. All of these experiences of oppression mm-hmm. are opened up by the artistic genius of the blues woman, of the jazz woman, that genius of Baltimore City, mm-hmm. Billie Holiday. But how does she do it? Well, she does it in such a way. She, she masters her craft, so she knows what she's doing. She, she's singing in tune. That's very important. You yeah. got a lot of young folk these days making big money, can't sing in tune, but that's a whole different. That's, different that, that, that's when the market takes over. You know what I mean? The market just takes over. So you got yeah. to market brand, but you, you lose sight of your moral cause. And so you do and say almost anything to make money. No, mm-hmm. that's not Billy Holiday. Billy going to get the no trade. She's going to sing in tune. Then she's going to take you to places where you must engage, acknowledge, wrestle with the catastrophe. Because the blues is catastrophe lyrically expressed. So she's going to lyrically express that catastrophe, but then generate joy, sources of power, embodiment of philosophy at its spiritual level. So that you want to keep on keeping on. (laughs) Yes. Blues is catastrophe lyrically expressed. B.B. Mm. King said, nobody loves me but my mama and she mm. might be jiving too. <laughs> <laughs> That's the B-side of the thrill is gone. 
Yes. Yes, the king from Mississippi. Mm. Uh, uh, the blues. Well, mm. BB, what you mean? Nobody <laughs> loves me but your mama. She might be just all the forces of the world, of the cosmos. It's like Sophocles is Antigone. Every force you know is against you. Mm -hmm. But what does he do? He still got a smile. He's sitting there with Lucille. And he's playing Lucille. When he plays Lucille, you can hear Robert Johnson. You can hear Bob Maureen. You can hear Bessie Smith coming through the guitar. He brings a tradition mm -hmm. with him, the way Sister Beyonce brought the tradition to Coachella. Yes. She didn't want to show up as an isolated spectacle of the mm -hmm. superstar. She said, come on, Black folk, bring your band from the Black colleges. We're going to play a little Frankie Beverly mm -hmm. and Maze. We're going to play some Larry Blackman and and, and Cameo, we're going to bring this whole tradition to the world. When you go to Rikers, when you go anywhere, when you with me now, oh, Lord, I can feel D.B., I can feel Alfred, I can feel Nina Simone, I can feel Tony Morrison, I can feel Virginia Woolf, I can feel all of that coming through. And yeah. same with me. This ain't yeah. just Brother West. This uh -huh. is Irene. This is Clifton. That this is, is Curtis it. Mayfield. That is right. Absolutely. It, is, it is appreciating and understanding the interconnectedness of That's it all. Right. Absolutely. And it cuts across color. Yeah. It's Stephen Sondheim. It cuts across gender. Yeah. It's Muriel Rukeyser. It cuts across nation. Mm -hmm. It's Rumi. It cuts across, you know, all these different arbitrary labels and and boundaries and borders mm -hmm. so that it gets to the depth of our humanity and as you noted not just humanity but our relation to precious non-humans that oh yes it's incredibly important so very very important you know sister bell hooks who's my dear sister in the giant she's buddhist sister too mm -hmm. and she'd come out of the black baptist tradition you know it's hard to fully leave the Black Baptist tradition, you know, <laughs> even Octavio Butler, I mean, she, she's former Black Baptist too, and she's now ecumenical and cosmopolitan, spiritual to the core, but not tied to any particular religious tradition, and that's a beautiful thing, Coltrane was like that too, but some of us remain lodged, locked into and lodged into certain, certain, certain religious traditions, and we learn from, from one another, and Bell Hooks used to always talk about how anthropocentric mm. these notions of religious love are. And she's absolutely right about that. And I love yeah. the, the fact that you enacted on such a high level, embody that philosophy on such a high level. Oh, and I love what she when she talks about love, right? When she says that it's yeah. not, it's an it's an action word and that there's qualities to it, right? That it's accountability, it's trust, it's nurturing, <laughs> it's commitment, <laughs> that it's not just this this thing that we want to feel in the air, but we have to move. We have to do absolutely. something. We can't just sit as a meditator. I can't just sit on my cushion and wish it all away and contemplate my existence by just looking at my navel, but I've got to do something. Um, I want to see change in, in myself and in the world. Precisely. Every great virtue, every great virtue mm -hmm. is a verb. Yeah. So you talk about hope. No, you got to be a hope. Mm. Are you enacting hope? Mm -hmm. Talk about justice. Are you being just? Yes. Are you the change that you talk about? To use the language of our dear brother, our Hindu brother, Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, you see. When you talk about love, oh, oh, love is a form of death. You gotta learn how to die. Your egoistic ego, some egoistic self somehow 
has to experience forms of death in order to unleash all of the good stuff that allows you to be connected and entangled with another person and you yes. become a kind a new being in a certain kind of way. I mean, and Paul talks about this. Uh, in, yeah, and appreciating their imperfection, right? Like, oh, I yes. think we can get caught up, right? We can get caught up in this idea that it has to look and feel a certain way right now. But if we don't allow that room for it to feel uncomfortable and even ugly sometimes, That's that we right. won't be able to get to this place where it feels the way that we think it should feel. And truthfully, when we get there, that may not be the feeling that we're looking for anyway. That's true. That's true. You know, I did a sister from Athens a thousand years ago named Sappho talked about love is bittersweet. Mm. I see she already wrestled with the blues. Mm. <laughs> Because love is not just the most majestic and sublime force in the world, but it can also be catastrophic. Mm-hmm. Because the loss of a loved one mm-hmm. is catastrophic. catastrophic. You're at the funeral, you're grateful that you had them for so long. Mm-hmm. It's like my mother, I was so glad she lived to be 88 years old. I'm 68 years good God, I'm the most blessed human being in late modernity to have a mother like that. Mm-hmm. But with her in the coffin, ooh, it hurts so much. Yeah. When you love that deep, yep. like Tennyson, when Arthur died in the in memoriam, that great poem, mm. dealing with the loss, rather to have loved and lost and never to have loved at all. And the loss is death. It's not just betrayal. Betrayal is another kind of loss. Yeah. But even when you do love all the way down, loyal till the end, you still have a deep sense of grief hurt and pain Mm. so that you have to be prepared in any kind of vulnerability and intimacy when you give completely of yourself i mean in my own tradition we call this kenosis right Mm. the outright emptying of yourself yes the giving of every fiber inside of you to someone else or to a cause Mm -hmm. to some grand project. It's like Rembrandt. Rembrandt is kenosis on the canvas. Yes. Oh, you see the return of the prodigal son he painted right before he died. Oh, Lord, all the humanity, (laughs) all of the hurt, all of the struggle and unbelievable deterioration and decline, but still the love that comes through. That's kenosis. Right. It was like James Brown concert. That brother go four hours straight, mm-hmm. nonstop. And at the end of every concert, I am who I am because of you. Mm. I come to serve you. Did yeah. we did we miss out on playing a song that you came here to hear? Somebody holler in the back. You didn't play Soul Power. He said, hit it, Bootsy. You came to serve. <laughs> James, we've been playing for four hours. We're going to play one more song. We came to serve the people. And when we leave that stage, we're going to rock that stage because we yeah. gave everything inside of us. You hear it in the reefer. You hear it in James Cleveland's piano. Train blowing his horn so hard, look like he's going to blow something yeah. out of his neck. He throw the horn on the ground and start beating his chest. Rashid Ali say, Train, what you doing? I'm giving the people everything I got, and now the horn's getting in the way. Ooh, that's Martin King. Yeah. That's Malcolm X. Yeah. That's Fanny Lou Hamer. Mm-hmm. That's Al Green. That mm-hmm. brother can perform with one arm broken. Mm-hmm. 
and get the holy dance and almost turn the flip, still stay with the falsetto and give everything he got inside of him. So when you leave that concert, you have undergone some change and transformation. You felt something so deep, you will never forget that for the rest of your life. Thank you, Al Green. I'm just part of the tradition. Mm -hmm. I happen to be from Forest City, Arkansas, but I'm part of the tradition. I learned it in Jim Crow, Arkansas, in the church. I learned it on the block. And we got to take that with us, right? Like that is what we have to take. And that That's is what we pass exactly on. exactly right. That's exactly. And all great traditions produce these different forms of kenosis and self-emptying and self-giving and self-sacrifice and serving others and finding great joy in serving others. Yes. Yes. Oh, thank you, Dr. West. I want to keep talking to you, but I think we have some questions that are starting to come up. And I was wondering if you might be able to answer a few questions from the amazing people who are sitting with us today. Wonderful. And I have Larissa Conte says, both of you are so lyrical and poetic, so fluid, so alive, demonstrating the power of lyrical love in your modeling. Would love to hear each of you share about why the lyrical is so powerful at midwifing what needs to die at transmuting the stuckness and the catastrophe. Ooh, <laughs> oh, we got some up. high quality participants and agents out there, huh? Oh, Larissa, I love you, Larissa. Larissa. <laughs> She's throwing down in a beautiful way because, I mean, I, I aspire to what she says we are. I, I know I'm a crack vessel just trying to love my crooked neighbor with my crooked heart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I do think there is something about lyricism that tries to cut through the superficial mm -hmm. and what's on the surface and try to get at the core mm -hmm. of what what I think, you know, our living is all about so that it shatters the denial. Mm -hmm. uh, it shatters the, uh, uh, the, all of the attempts to uh, hide and conceal what needs to be confronted mm -hmm. so that joy and sorrow, you see, lyricism has a way of trying to hit those head on. Yeah. Justice and injustice. That, that would be my response. But what, what would be your response, my dear sister? I think, I think for me, it's that idea that everything is connected. So when I am sad, at the same time, I know that joy is also there because without it, I wouldn't know sadness. Mm. And so even mm. in that in-between and in that knowing, that helps me transmute. And I think that allows me to feel, you know, and I talked about integrity, that allows me to move with integrity. Um, I think before I started on this whole yoga journey, I felt undivided. And I think because mm. I wasn't honoring the parts that I didn't want to, I didn't want to name or I didn't want to look at. But as soon as I did, the love and the joy started to dance with wow. sadness. So I that's think for me, that's how I, that's how I transmute it. That's how I, I start to move, I think, differently. And I think that's, that's the joy and the connection with my ancestors and with my family and I think I even look different than I did before I came to this realization. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that's so powerful. Because yeah. in the end, what we're trying to do is we're trying to see more broadly and more deeply. There was a wonderful letter that Henry James wrote to Robert Louis Stevenson, uh, I think about January 12, 1901. He said, no theory 
is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. Mm. And we can say the same thing. No philosophy is kind to us. No religious tradition is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. Yes. And when you see more broadly and more deeply, it means you feel more profoundly. Yes. That's where the compassion and the empathy come in. Mm -hmm. And in the end, therefore, you act more courageously, which means you're no longer driven by fear and being afraid. When you mm -hmm. say to yourself, I'd rather be a corpse than a coward. I'd rather be dead than afraid. Or James Baldwin says in his letter to the nephew, don't come, be afraid. Yes. Oh, that's a powerful line. Mm. That's a powerful, because as long as you're afraid, you're intimidated, you're walking around kowtowing and following folk and well-adjusted to injustice and trying to fit into an unjust status quo. Yes. And that comma, know. right? That comma is that yes. linking. The comma becomes part of the lyric. That's right. That's yeah. exactly right. You know what Alex Haley said about James Comma? All of those effing commas, <laughs> what Alex, Alexander said about James Baldwin. He said, all of those effing commas, I just can't take it, Brother West. I mean, he told me that, uh, told me that in Tennessee. I said, Alex, man, that, that's Baldwin. That's Baldwin's style, man. That's his style. Yeah. That's yeah, that, that was the linking. That was the, that was the, that's a lyric. His comma is a that's lyric. Absolutely. Sometimes it's slow. With Coltrane and Giant Steps, he plans so fast they can't transpose the notes on the paper. Mm -hmm. He's expressing himself in that way. Yep. Some yep. are all going to go off to Mars. He's going to take you somewhere else. Human beings have tried everything possible. Come with me and try the impossible. Let's get on the mothership. That was before George Clinton created. So that means everybody got their own way of wrestling and lyrically, which is being true to yourself, saying what you mean, mean what you say, no posing, no posturing, no wearing the mask. People have to figure out where you stand, who you really are. No, no, be yourself. Mm -hmm. Back to the blues and jazz. Yes. Back to the anthem of black people. Just lift every voice. It doesn't say lift every echo. If you're going to be an extension of an echo chamber, you can go on back. Yes. Go yes. on back somewhere else. Find your voice. Everybody got a voice like their fingerprint, but the voice is only found through bouncing off other voices, learning from other voices, being humble enough to listen to other voices. But when you do that, then there's a certain kind of lyricism that's going to come through. That's right. That's when we can come together. Absolutely. Folks, if you have questions that you would like to ask of Dr. West, please feel free to pop in your questions now. Oh. Dr. West, this is such a joy. This is such a joy. What are you, you reading right now? What are you what reading I, right now that, that's, that's moving you that we should be checking out? Oh, good God Almighty, though. What about research? Well, what 10 things right? are you probably reading right now? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to reread James Joyce's The Dead, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, where he's wrestling with the role of, of music as it relates to mortality. Mm -hmm. and the ways in which uh, dissolving relationships and wrestling with vulnerability go hand in hand with how music can open us up and empower us in some ways even more deeply than some of the other arts. I mean, I tend to be rather uh, partial to music in that way. Mm -hmm. you know, Walter Pater says the arts 
all aspire to the condition of music. That sounds a little bit harsh, but I think there's something to it. I think there's ways in which music in our religious practices, music in our reading, in our literary practices, we need more music in our politics mm-hmm. because music is a way of allowing us to open to our vulnerability. We can overcome some of this polarization and gangsterization. Music mm-hmm. is a way of, as Lorca says, taking us to the dark root of our screen. Mm-hmm. And in the end, that dark root of the human screen is a way of acknowledging our common humanity, given all of our different differences. And even physiologically, right? When we hear music, that stimulation of the vagus nerve, right? Like we physically and physiologically can can shift when we hear That's music. True. That's yeah. very true. That's yeah. very true. Very yeah. much so. But I don't want to fetishize it though, because music can be used and deployed. You know, and I was down mm-hmm. in Charlottesville dealing with some of my very, very sick white brothers, the neo-Nazis and the Klan. Mm-hmm. And I was walking by as part of the, uh, the protests against them. And they were cussing and, you know, spitting and caring for, carrying on. But some of them were listening to Motown. Mm. So I said to myself, mm, so you want to enjoy the music of the very people that you want to kill. Mm-hmm. You want to murder me, but mm-hmm. you want to listen to Smokey Robinson and Stevie right. Wonder? Right. You see how? contradictory that mm-hmm. is but it's very human yeah because they've that's been the messiness that's the messiness of it you see that you can't rob even the biggest gangsters and thugs of their humanity and their humanity was touched by the genius of marvin Gaye mm-hmm. or Smokey robinson mm-hmm. and even as young folk they were socialized in a youth culture that's been so afro-americanized it's almost mm-hmm. impossible to be a young person in America or around the world and not be affected by black music. Yeah. And of course, hip hop is the lingua franca of young people in every corner of the globe. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Of, but they could still use the music as something that empowers them as they then go off to engage in their devilish mess. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know what I mean? The way Hitler was trying to use Beethoven. How are you going to use Ode to Joy at the end of the Ninth Symphony and be such a gangster and a thug when it comes to Jewish brothers and sisters, gays and lesbians and communists and socialists? You exemplify the highest level of thuggery. Mm-hmm. And yet you're going to try to use Ludwig Beethoven's music. Yeah. Come yeah. On. Well, human beings are highly creative <laughs> when it comes to being cruel when it comes to being vicious and ugly and so forth. Yeah. And they'll yes. use any religious scripture, any music, any, whatever it is. It can be scripture of Christian, Jews, Hindu, whatever it is. Yeah. We human beings will use it. Here's the United States. Look at the United States using, using the Hebrew Bible and New Testament to justify the hatred of us. Mm-hmm. There's Adam, people, indigenous Adam people says well. here, uh, that Nazis use the Bhagavad Gita as well. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. We have a few more questions. Uh, Rashida, hi, Rashida, um, wants to know what book or music would you recommend to a young Black woman that is struggling to recognize her internalization of white supremacy? Thank you, Rashida. Ooh, that's oh. a beautiful. Well, you know, I mean, one is uh, Miseducation by Lauren Hill in terms mm-hmm. of the, the, the younger generation mm-hmm. than myself. 
uh, what's going on is still, I think, the greatest album of popular culture in the last 50 years. But that's my bias in terms of my generation. <laughs> but that's Marvin Gaye. What's going on? It's just, okay. Because uh, uh, Marvin knows that it's not solely a question of speaking truth to Powell and the condition of truth to allow suffering to speak. But you must also speak truth to the relatively powerless. Yes. See, this is what Malcolm understood. You got to tell the truth to the very people who are catching hell. Mm -hmm. It's not just speaking truth to the people who are dominating and creating so much of the mm -hmm. hell, but mm -hmm. the people themselves. So that truth, when uncompromisingly stated, has a jagged edge. That's the language mm -hmm. of the great Herman Melville. And he's absolutely right. It cuts against the worst of us, and it cuts against the worst of the institutions and the structures in the society and world. And so when I think of miseducation uh, of, of Lauren Hill and echoes of the book, The Miseducation mm -hmm. of the Negro by Carter yeah, G. Woodson. Absolutely. And you turn to page 44 in that text, and what does he say? I hope that the highly educated Negroes fall in love with their people. Mm because if they turn their backs, if they're indifferent, if they're distant, if they're callous toward their own black poor and black working class and are obsessed only with black celebrities and black middle class, you're still gonna live a spiritually truncated life in blackness. Mm -hmm. You see, that's Carter G. Woodson. Absolutely. Harvard PhD. Yeah. Probably could get a job mm -hmm. in the academy. Only taught one year at Howard and got pushed out of Howard that one year. Yeah. With Durkee, Stanley Durkee, he was in the president of Howard, but that's Carter G. Woodson. His love is so deep mm -hmm. of black people and others. He was in the Philippines and other places mm -hmm. as well. Uh, it, and he's he's a love warrior, the same way Du Bois was, the same way Toni Morrison was, the same way James Baldwin was. Yeah, thank you. I have a question, a couple questions here that came up in the chat. So Steve McLean asks. Many tend to think of spirituality as an internal function and focus their own well-being or and focus on their own well-being or betterment. How can we encourage our spiritual brothers and sisters to embrace the responsibility to extend spiritual gains outward to strengthen the citizenry around them? Internal journeys should give external sharing and support of others. Mm. Well, I just love the way that question is formulated because I think it's got the powerful answer already implicit in it. <laughs> that any form of spirituality that remains privatistic and personal is too narrow and truncated. Mm -hmm. Any form of spirituality that is only communal mm -hmm. and only institutional, mm -hmm. that has nothing to say to the individual person, is too mm -hmm. narrow and truncated. Yes. They go hand in hand. Absolutely. That's why I tell the young folk all the time. We went to jail in Ferguson. We're inside a jail, 25 of us. We're having a good time. <laughs> and uh, singing a little music. You know, a lot of them, you know, didn't know too much of Luther. So I tried to sing a little Luther for them. I try not to sing out of tune. But, uh, uh, but I would tell them, they said, oh, Brother West, we're so glad you woke. I said, well, you know, I'm just not woke because I don't want to suffer from insomnia here. <laughs> see, I want to be a long distance runner. I'm in it for right. the long haul great autobiography of Miles Horton, white uh, freedom fighter. And I would tell them, I would say, look, that in the end, any justice that's only justice mm -hmm. soon degenerates into something less than justice. Mm -hmm. 
justice is tied to love, but they're not identical. They're inseparable. Love is deeper than justice. If you are not driven by a genuine care and concern for folk who are catching hell, or a care and concern for human beings and other creatures as the planet could undergo unbelievable catastrophic explosions on to on the human greed primarily, then the justice itself remains superficial. Mm. So justice is not some kind of lifestyle. Yes. You see, it is driven by a deep yeah, love, care, so concern, true. and compassion, and it is a vehicle through which you express your deep care, concern, and compassion. Mm -hmm. And so that when we talk about love here, we really talk about this fundamental commitment. Yes. To change. That means, yes, you must come to terms with domination. You must come to terms with injustice. You must come to terms with oppression. But you also must come to terms with the hounds of hell that beat on the, the, the battlefield of each and every one of our souls. Greed. That hatred, fear, hypocrisy, envy, resentment, all of those things. Mm. That ties right in with this next question from Aunt, from Adam. The existentialists note that life struggle is, in, uh, is a perpetual motion, continuing moving that rock up and watching it fall. Our struggle around racism and the plague can be the same thing and sometimes be futile at the end. How do we continue to act ethically in an absurd world like this? Ooh, what a wonderful question. And I would refer to the best book on existentialism written in the 20th century it's by Simone de Beauvoir called The Ethics of Ambiguity. Mm. The Ethics of Ambiguity. How was she able to sustain her commitment to an embodied philosophy tied to the freedom of all oppressed peoples, be it her friendship with Franz Fanon, her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre, her commitment to Black people, her commitment, of course, I mean, the second sex, 1949's classic in terms of critiques of okay. sexism and patriarchy, but understanding that there's always an ambiguity because anything we human beings are a part of is going to be tied to a finitude. It's going to be tied to a fallibility. And that's why self-criticism is important as opposed to self-righteousness. Because yeah. self-righteousness assumes that somehow you have unmediated access to this truth and the good. No, no, no one of us have unmediated access. We have a human access to it. Mm -hmm. and she makes this point over and over again. And, mm -hmm. and uh, Simone Beauvoir oftentimes is uh, overshadowed by Sartre. Both of them are giants. Yeah, But she was so clear about how she connected the ethics of existentialist philosophy to liberation of oppressed peoples in a systematic way. But understanding any system in the end is yeah. still incomplete and unfinished and mm. open-ended. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Liz wants to uh, ask us about yesterday's talks about classism in the U.S. and caste systems in India was a refreshing addition in the field of consumerized yoga and spiritual consumerism, she says. Dr. West, can you talk a little bit about anti-capitalism in this context of spiritual citizenship or Onika, bringing your work to disenfranchised folks in prison? Is this also at the core value of your work? Mm -hmm. Do you want to jump in on that question first and then I can follow you? Yeah. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think about, I think often about this system of oppression every single time that, that I go into work. Um, and it's almost like this, it, it's almost like a being in and of itself. Um, it's really, it's really challenging, right? I think about, I think about the time when I was still volunteering and going in and, mm. you know, when, when you go into Rikers, you, it, it's a process, you know, it is an island. Rikers is an actual island. So it takes all of this time to get there. And then you have to go through this, this gate and get on a bus that takes you to the jail that you're going to. And you have to hand over these IDs. And every single time you do it, it's like you're, you're handing over a piece of yourself. And, and when you finally get to where you're going, it is very clear that um, you are no longer in control. You are giving over agency, even though you're working mm -hmm. there or volunteering there. And, and, and as, as a Black queer woman, I, I, I definitely um, felt in, in a different and tangible way what oppression feels like, right? Mm -hmm. when, when, I, when I went inside jail. And so this one time um, I was leaving, I was, I was still volunteering and I, I was outside waiting for the bus to go home. And I was standing in this area where visitors were supposed to wait for the bus. But because I had an ID, this, this guy, this officer said to me, what are you doing standing over there? I said, oh, I was just waiting for the bus. And then he looked down at my ID and he said, oh, sweetheart, I'm really sorry. I didn't see that you were a volunteer. You should wait over here. And in that moment, I actually said to myself, is this what it feels like to embody privilege? That someone, someone said to me, you aren't like them because you aren't a visitor. You are different because you have this ID and it distinguishes you. So you should be waiting over here. And it really sat with me my entire way home because that caste system became very clear in a way that I hadn't even, I, I think been able to so perfectly see racism and classism in the caste system because I, it had been so embodied in me. But my privilege was actually given to me in that moment. And I was told not to be that person, but to be mm -hmm. this person instead. Yes. So I have never forgotten that. And whenever I go in, I, I, I really do try to remember that I am there in service and of everybody of the officers, of the folks who are incarcerated, of our community members, of staff members. And by doing that, I do hope it's a way that I start to ripple down and, and, and start to pull that caste system apart with love. So Liz, I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what sort of dropped in when, when I read that. Oh, that's powerful. That's powerful. Yeah. yeah, I think that we have to acknowledge the greatest critic of, of capitalism of uh, the modern age, and that's Karl Marx. Uh, I was blessed to write a dissertation on Marx called The Ethical Dimensions of Marxist Thought. A lot of Marxists don't like to talk about the ways in which Karl Marx was driven by a righteous indignation, mm -hmm. a profound hatred of idolatry. He was Jewish mm -hmm. in origin. He grew up as a Protestant. He became an atheist by choice. But mm -hmm. he had six generations of rabbis, of Mordecai, mm -hmm. and, 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 and this sense of of, of always bringing critique to bear on idolatry. Mm -hmm. And for Karl Marx, capitalism created a commodified way of life, which was a form of viewing life as a gold rush. Mm -hmm. 
So you, anybody who views life as a gold rush ends up worshiping the golden calf mm -hmm. and turning the golden rule into he who has the gold will rule. Mm -hmm. And Marx had a hatred of domination. Mm -hmm. He had a hatred of injustice. In that sense, he's very much like, like Amos or Esther or mm -hmm. Isaiah. Yeah. He wrote an essay when he was 17 years old. The Protestant say Jesus Christ as liberator of oppressed people. You say, wow, that sounds like liberation theology. That sounds yep. like James Cone and yep. Gustavo Gutierrez and, and others. But he has this strong spiritual dimension because he wants what? He wants human beings to live a full life, to flower and flourish independent of making money and power and greed to end all and be all of life. And he wants community. He uses the very language of of the New Testament, we said, I want a society to each according to their need yes. and pulling from their ability. That, that's right out of Acts. Yeah. Doesn't make him a Christian. It just said he's looking for ways of engaging the spirit and society that go beyond all forms of idolatry. The idol could be profit, it could be race, it could be gender. How do you stay in contact with the rich humanity? so that all, especially the least of these. It's no accident that Franz Fanon in the Wretched of the Earth, he begins the text invoking Matthew 20, 16. He said, decolonization, the overcoming of imperialization of the world is in fact mm -hmm. putting into practice the first shall be last and the last first. Yes. Meaning what? Those who have been pushed to the margins, rendered invisible, dehumanized, disrespected across the board no matter who they are, because there's so many candidates of folk who have been hated and haunted and hunted and mm. devalued and so forth. How does their humanity mm. become center stage? Mm. And that's not a matter of hating the rich, it's hating the greed of the rich. It's yeah. hating the indifference of the rich. Is hating the ignorance of the rich when yeah. it comes to the rich humanity of working and poor people. So that mm -hmm. it's not anti-capitalism, it is for humanity that yeah. leads us for the critique of the idolatries of capitalist civilization. Thank you. We are getting close on time here and I just wanna get to a, maybe two more questions. Um, this has been such a joy and a blessing. And Holly wants to know, Dr. West, do you have any advice for young folks who hope to continue the tradition of spreading love through music and poetry in a world that seems to become more aggressive and divisive daily? A lot of young people I know have the soul and passion to spread love, but feel that technology and spectacle makes organic music and community difficult to spread. Mm -hmm. Oh, wonderful question. I love the yearning in that question. I love the passion behind it. It's a heartfelt question. But keep in mind that musicians, poets in every generation have had unbelievable obstacles. You know what I mean? When, when Shelley says poets are the unacknowledged legislatures of the world, he said that in a revolutionary situation, in Greece independence. He said that in a moment in which Britain didn't even allow working class to vote. He said that in a moment in which Colonization was so hegemonic all around the world. Shelley, what makes you think that these new circumstances are going to be those that allow you your voice? He says, because I've got to raise it no matter what. Mm. So it is these days. We got mm. digital reality, social media, and so forth. 
different than what Shelly had, mm -hmm. but you find ways in which you raise your voice because if you don't say something, the rocks are gonna shout out. So yeah. you read the great poets, you read Gwendolyn Brooks. How did you do it, Gwendolyn? You read Muriel Rukeyser. How did you do it, Muriel Rukeyser? Mm -hmm. All the great poets and the musicians as well. We want to get to, we, we can come back to uh, Rasan. <laughs> <Real life. laughs> How'd you do it, brother? <laughs> well, I had Coltrane. Well, I had, you, know, you see what I mean? I had, I had partners. I had friends uh -huh. that kept me going. Yeah. Dizzy helped me. Yeah. Monk was there. Sarah Vaughn was there. Mm. Dinah mm. was there. That community. And that's what young folk need. And, and, and they enacted. I mean, young folk have tremendous, tremendous uh, artists. There's no doubt about it. But there are golden ages, and we have to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. mm. Thank you. Well, we have time for uh, one more question um before we go and uh stanley wants to know can you connect us participants to practical resources to develop the relational aspects of spirituality and citizenship and my experience looking at myself isn't as rich or long-lasting until i see the difficulties out in family and personal circles in the workplace the public or even at the supermarket Yes, no, I think there's deep insight in that question. I can't answer that question with any detail because it has to do with what options are available mm -hmm. to each and every one of us. Yeah. But I'll say something that uh, is so crucial from uh, the 1960s, which is that you must be organized. Mm -hmm. The notion of a spiritual citizen mm -hmm. who is not in any way organized is a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. So all of the self-cultivation that is so important, all of the learning how to die is so crucial, mm -hmm. must be connected to being part of some community. Yes. And by community, we're not talking about some large mass movement. It would be mm -hmm. nice if we had a mass movement, but we've got social motion, we've got social momentum and some social movements attempting to get off the ground. The Poor People's Campaign and Brother Barber and Sister Thea Harris is one great example, Black Lives Matter. Other. Yeah ecological movements, the feminist, womanist movements, the movements against homophobia and all of its vicious forms and what have you. But in the end, the choices that you make as a which organization is going to be your own personal choice. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Very much so. Oh, thank you, Dr. West. This has been an absolute joy and a pleasure to spend time with you, to share space with everybody that's here. Any closing thoughts before we go? I just want to salute you, my dear sister, as in the language of John Coltrane, being a real force for good. Thank you. And that makes all the difference in the world because we're not here that long in time and space, mm -hmm. you know? Thank you. And we end up with having a joy, a love, a commitment that nobody can take away. Mm -hmm. You could be in Brooklyn, you could be in Rikers, wherever Onika goes, she got that smile, that style, that joy, just like B.B. <laughs> King, just like Billy Holiday, just like Tony Morrison. Oh, that's the love train you on. Ah. And it's a beautiful thing to see, to absorb, and to feel, to feel. And that's what is so very important. We need folk who can feel and help others to feel as they Socratically think. 
as they courageously engage. And of course, I want to salute my dear brother Jacob mm -hmm. because it's his vision, yeah. it's his determination Absolutely. that enables all of this good stuff mm -hmm. tied to serious discussions about spiritual citizenship to take place. Thank you. Thank you everyone for being here, for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for your questions, your comments, your thoughts, your love, your energy. I could feel it as we were talking. Um, I am so grateful for all of you for supporting this and for being a part of Embodied Philosophy and this talk with Dr. Cornell West. Um, we do have a, a workshop tonight at 6 p.m. and I hope you tune in to the other talks that we're talking about today on day four of spiritual citizenship on racial healing. Thank you all very much. Sending you lots of love and lots of metta for your day. Dr. West, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are a joy. Indeed. Love you, love you, love you. Thank you. Indeed. Salute to Sister Dee Dee. <laughs> oh, yes. Indeed, indeed. Oh, oh yeah. Dr. West, thank you. Be well, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.